And welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer, that is the uh, podcast edition of Grant's. I am Jim Grant, and uh, with me today, as always, is uh, Eric Whitehead at the dials. He's our engineer, and the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grant's, is, is here with us, and as is Phil Grant, who runs our almost daily Grant's, and his last name is, yeah, it's a coincidence, fine, I'm father, his son. And uh, I don't know, and uh, with us also, uh, soon to be with us, is Trey Reich, who manages gold and gold investments for Sprott Asset Management in Toronto. We are brought to you today by the uh, people at Casper, which is, uh, one doesn't say mattress so much as sleep brand. It is a sleep brand that is uh, pretty fabulous, and I'll be getting into some of those details a little later on. But uh, first, uh, Trey is the author of a merely fabulous uh, think piece on um, gold and the putative challengers to gold bullion and the role of a great store of value and a monetary substitute for fiat currencies. And that something or other that, that would be contender are the cryptocurrencies. And um, Trey, like so many other gold people, I certainly am one of them, have been reading for what seems like many, many fiscal quarters about the obsolescence of this rock that just sits there looking good. It's gold, 5,000 years old, doesn't really show its age, but we've been listening to these contentions uh, that Bitcoin, Ethereum, what have you, have indeed superseded uh, this legacy thing, have disrupted it. And Trey has written, as I say, a merely fabulous uh, challenge to the challenge. Trey, could you, in a few well-chosen words, tell me your thesis? Sure. So, uh, and by the way, my hesitancy was because the Darien uh, uh, police officers and fire department are heading towards the office on an apparent altercation. So I was trying to mute myself a bit. But the, uh, um, you know, the the there there are some similarities between. Uh, cryptocurrencies and gold, which I think you and I probably agree uh, with, and that is, you know, the motivation. And while we can't be sure on any given day why anyone buys gold or uh, Bitcoin, I think that there are a growing percentage of the folks who are given to each of those investment queues who are a teeny bit concerned about something that you write about uh, all the time, and that is this uh, trend towards financially repressive policies by global central banks. It, it's not that the general consensus isn't aware of these policies, but with the S&P hitting new highs pretty much every hour these days, uh, it's certainly not at the top of people's minds. But there are a group, I think, uh, small and growing and at the margin, who are concerned that you know perhaps this past summer might be a good starting point in uh, the summer of 2016 when the uh, number of negative-yielding sovereign bonds around the world hit uh, new all-time highs, uh, and ever since this uh, discussion uh, from official central banks, not in every country, but in many, about uh, you know the benefits of eliminating cash in many parts uh, of the economy for efficiencies and, of course, to fight you know terrorism and the bad guys, but more likely uh, to enforce the negative interest rates that were becoming a trend. Uh, I do think certain. Folks have, have investors have you know started to look for alternatives for investments outside the financial system, and cryptocurrencies and gold, uh, in my opinion, uh, are two examples of vehicles which you know fit that bill. It's also quite possible that that's where their similarities, in my mind at least, end. Um, you know, gold is gold, and uh, Bitcoin is a string of code generated by 
software protocols and, and cryptographic algorithms. There's also, I think right off the bat, I have to admit, you know, uh, I think we all in this room wish we had a little bit of Bitcoin or more than we do because $1,000 at, you know, July 2010 prices, which were a nickel, you know, at 3000 here in the middle of June, uh, would have represented about $60 million bucks for a $1,000 investment. So um, I do think it's an interesting speculation, um, a very potent speculation. And for those that have uh, been lucky enough to time it right, uh, they probably think gold's the, you know, the last thing they should consider. Where I think our discussion today centers is more on the store of value issue. And I think and in that uh, regard, uh, they're very, very different. In this uh, wonderful uh, strategy piece you wrote, Trey, you uh, compared the uh, evident permanence of gold with the new arrival of the cryptos. And you uh, pointed out that one of the, the great uh, proponents of cryptocurrencies and the blockchain is, uh, is the former head of Netscape, a company that gave every promise of being a finalist in the uh, emerging technology called the internet, but lo and behold, it seems not to have been. And you compare that to Bitcoin, which is, for now, the undisputed market-leading crypto, uh, but may not be forever. Tell us, please, about the competitive field in, in cryptocurrencies. How many are there, and which are the ones that are likely to survive and prosper? That's an excellent question. The uh, the Mark Andreessen mention is interesting because I, I have read. Obviously, we've all read a lot about Mark, and he certainly knows, you know, more about this topic uh, than we will ever uh, hope to. But it is interesting that he was a Netscape founder, and it's also interesting uh, if you follow the public filings of what uh, uh, Andreessen Horowitz is is, is up to. Uh, they, uh, I was on the treadmill once, and I was watching an interview with Mark. And he pointed out that uh, while blockchain technology is going to be, you know, potentially the most disruptive thing since the Internet, and of course we hear that a lot, but the applications for blockchain technology, even I can understand, which means there are probably lots of them. But he pointed out that uh, his firm had invested, I think at the time, in 74 competing or uh, complementary products to Bitcoin. And the key there is that, you know, obviously no one knows if, if Bitcoin's going to be the eventual winner. They do have an enormous lead, by the way, an enormous lead and very entrenched uh, support, which is why, on the good side, Bitcoin's volatility is far less than most of the other cryptocurrencies. But there's always an innovation. And one thing I know for sure, the smartest you know, scientists and researchers and financiers and entrepreneurs are focused on Bitcoin 24-7 uh, because of the appreciation that I mentioned to you. And as a result of that, as everybody tries to find, um, you know, a better mousetrap, because Bitcoin does have certain limitations that have already been uh, identified, and we can talk about those in a minute, but the blockchain limit and the amount of traffic on the network is already getting a little bit cumbersome, which is what led to the, the recent civil war. But to answer your question specifically, when I wrote uh, the final version of that letter this past weekend, uh, there were 973 cryptocurrency and crypto tokens in existence. And I just checked before we started the call, and it's 986. So 13 more have entered the fray since Sunday. Um, and I will admit that as I scour the list, there are, we've gotten to the point where some of them have um, monikers which we couldn't repeat uh, on today's uh, podcast that are of the four-letter variety. So 
we've sort of gotten into the goofy stuff, um, but nevertheless, they keep coming. And interestingly, Bitcoin's percentage of the market, which you know was near 100, say, a year ago, actually dipped as low as 40% on the sell-off over the weekend. I don't know if you're aware of this, Jim, but Bitcoin sold off 25% on Saturday and Sunday alone in anticipation of this coming change in uh, software protocols, but has since recovered. So there is a view that Bitcoin's store of value attraction comes from the fact that the amount of Bitcoin units that are available to be mined over time is hard capped at 21 million. And I think we're about 16.5 million today. So, And the rate of generation of Bitcoins halves every four years, believe it or not. So at the current rate, we're making, or the computer system is generating 12.5 Bitcoins every 10 minutes, and that rate will fall. And so the 21 million hard cap is certainly a little different than what we would associate with the nomenclature and policies of the Federal Reserve. Right. And in that regard, I do believe there is a, there is a rarity value. The, the reason that's a little bit of a Pyrrhic victory is there's absolutely no limit as recent uh, uh, events in the cryptocurrency market have generated. Now, Trey, I, I, I hope that we can, um, we two gold guys can distinguish a high-minded criticism of the objective facts with a, a pure low green envy of those who were there first and who um, have been accumulating miners not in gold bullion, but rather in the cryptos. So tell me about the state of things that's brought. Here you guys are. You mentioned the word treadmill before, Trey, and that, I think that's going to resonate with many gold bulls. We have been on the treadmill more or less since 2000 and what, 11, 13, one loses track. What is going to cause gold to reassert itself as the once and future store of value in competition uh, with the cryptos? at it in terms of market cap, and I'm sure you're familiar with these numbers, but the amount of gold above ground ever mines about $7 trillion, and uh, most of that is, is in jewelry at its central banks, but of course, always fungible from those two categories to others. So worth mentioning outside you know, jewelry and central banks, we're talking about $2.7 trillion-ish, and the value of Bitcoin's about $35 billion. The whole industry at this moment's about $85 billion. So I think that uh, you know, one differential is that Bitcoin isn't, you know, is an interest, whether you call it a speculation or a punt or a store of value, it's, it's relatively tiny compared to the um, available stock of gold. So I think in certainly the institutional environment, uh, those looking for a store of value are unlikely to be distracted by, you know, Bitcoin's challenge. In terms of what is the catalyst, which is, I think, a question you and I have gotten for about a decade and a half about gold, I would point out that you know, gold's up in 15 of, of, of the past 17 years in an average of all currencies and 14 of 17 in dollars. So um, we've certainly uh, seen gold play its role as designed uh, in this progressive, you know, monetary debasement since, you know, the turn of the millennium. I'm not sure that we'll ever know what exactly the catalyst is that, that causes a, another hockey stick type move in gold. On the other hand, I'd take another, you know, 15 years like this one since gold is already the best uh, performing asset on the planet, you know, since, again, to the end of 2000. Uh, my view about the short run is that the Fed is involved in an, an FOMC tightening cycle 
which I believe is is uh, not only you know ill-advised, but I'm not sure they're that confident in it either. Without parsing all the different statements of the Fed governors over the past uh, you know three to six months, suffice yes, it to say, not. they've been a little confusing because they're uh, you know not really in concert, which what I think is a pretty you know obvious you know soft spot in in, in U.S. economic growth. So I believe the first three rate hikes in, in this concerted cycle since this past December have already caused stop, uh, softness in places like autos and retail and restaurants. That's debatable because general economic conditions have indeed loosened since the Decem- most recent December rate hike. But my view is that over the course of the next six months, certainly between now and, and the holidays, it will become increasingly clear that the Fed is concerned about things like a rollover in, in C&I loans and bank assets and M2, and uh, which, by the way, are all negative for the past uh, five weeks. And the CPI situation, which is sort of under the radar, but we've now had four straight months of, of uh, CPI disappointments versus estimate. And the last time we had a trajectory of year-over-year CPI like this was really just before Mr. Bernanke launched QE3. So I think the Fed's already too tight. Uh, I think the amount of debt in the system requires an enormous amount of liquidity from the Fed on every level. And I think that that realization is is, is what's likely to turn uh, gold in the short run, which, by the way, has been very stable, as you know, since the beginning of the year. If we measure it from the end of January, the range is about 8%. If we measure you know, the mid-January lows, it's about 15%. So gold uh, has been you know, very, very stable this year amid a lot of cross currents, and I think uh, more likely than not, recognition that the Fed may not only be done with this cycle, but maybe a little over their skis is what's likely to give gold the next upward leg of momentum. What do you see it's brought with respect to uh, inflows and interest, especially in the part of um, of uh, North American and European, you know, Western investors? Well, that's an awkward question because the answer isn't good. The uh, I'm I'm in uh, Darien, Connecticut, and, and a lot of our team is in Toronto. Can't speak directly to the Canadian flows, but I will tell you that in the United States, at least on the institutional level, uh, throughout this year and quite frankly last year, the interest is is pretty uh, pretty nominal. Would you say it's zero? Uh, I was trying not to use that word, but it wouldn't be out of the realm of of what. Okay, I would. compare and con- compare and contrast, Trey Wright. Compare and contrast the following sentence that you wrote. Actually, there are two of them. Hedge fund alert reports that the number of cryptocurrency hedge funds is fast approaching 40. Mm-hmm. Isn't that astonishing? And you go on to say, yeah. in short, what the, while the ultimate number of Bitcoins may be limited in supply, there is absolutely no limit to competing cryptocurrencies and the people who speculate in them. But 40 hedge funds devoted to cryptocurrencies is, to me, just stunning. And Hedge Fund Alert is a pretty granular publication, and in that story, uh, they mention it from the uh, point of view of administrators, accountants, lawyers, uh, and... Oh, uh, let us talk about... You mentioned, you are about to mention before I so rudely interrupt compliance. So mm-hmm. um, there was a story, I guess it was on Bloomberg a couple of days ago, in which the a co-founder of Ethereum Network, uh, Charles Hoskinson, I think somebody, another uh, eminence in the crypto coin world, were speculating on the lack of uh, regulatory scrutiny, let alone actual regulation, 
uh, of the cryptocurrency markets. And uh, they're both saying that pretty soon the SEC is going to come out and you know, inform the SEC would come out and say something. And that something, say they, is likely to be that digital coins are, in fact, securities. Now, what's, what would that do in your estimation? What would that do to the cryptocurrency world? Interestingly, other countries have been moving faster, I guess, than we have. Uh, one of the reasons that I believe, I personally believe, uh, Bitcoin tripled from sort of the end of March to the middle of June this year, you know, from 1,000 to 3,000, is the announcement by Japan that they were recognizing yes. uh, Bitcoin as a, I think they called it legal tender. Um, in fact, there's no question in my mind that that was part of the reason that Bitcoin started its vertiginous ascent. Obviously, the folks that watch Bitcoin helped out in the later part of the cycle. But I, I think the point here is that another aspect of this point, Bitcoin, which I didn't mention actually in our report, is that a lot of the movements come from completely unpredictable events on how different countries are handling Bitcoin. India also sort of liberalized Bitcoin recognition. They have already made a decision to tax it as gold in India. So that might be one approach that they might take here in the United States is to recognize Bitcoins, but tax it as a collectible, which would be, I guess, a bit ironic given its true nature. But um, that would be a neat class that I think we might try to stuff Bitcoin into here in the United States. On, uh, Trey, on, on June 22nd, Ethereum, the number two crypto brand, uh, was uh, trading at $315 per. And this is on the leading crypto exchange, uh, GDAX, right? $315. And uh, presently, uh, you know, these things do happen, I guess. Stop loss orders roll in. Emotions uh, do what emotions do in human affairs. And before you know it, a unit of Ethereum is not $315, not $31.50, but a dime on very high volume. Now, um, you observe this fact and you quote um, some commentator on Reddit about Ethereum, and that is to a non-technophile. This is uh, some of it is uh, coherent, not much of it. And you wind up dryly saying, does this narrative evoke store of value? Uh, to us, that just sounds like a lot of human beings being human beings. So is this an anomaly in the cryptocurrency world? Is this, is this a technical glitch that will soon be fixed? Or is this inherent in the nature of these objects? That's a really, really interesting question, and I, I do need to, I guess, defend the blockchain a bit here. I think that um, one of the problems with uh, all of the cryptocurrencies is their you know, cloak of ambiguity in the sense that I'm quite certain from how long I've known you that neither you nor I have any idea how these things actually work and, and what, in fact, cryptographic algorithms are and, and how these, these blockchains work. Those aren't the problem. The blockchain is pretty sacrosanct, well-designed, and to my knowledge, is never sort of involved in these breakdowns. The, it's, the point of this, which is kind of ironic, is in order to trade them, we still don't have blockchain-type systems. So we're, we're using these, um, you know, uh, cryptocurrency exchanges and sort of almost archaic ways to trade them. Uh, with everybody on the internet and instantaneous expectation for execution, etc., and it's the it's the trading systems um, that right. are the legacy trading systems that are having the breakdowns, and they're having 
um, jams because, uh, you know, the amount of interest is instantaneous. Well, let me say, Trey, there's nothing snarky in this report of yours about uh, the cryptos. It's all very respectful to this thing that uh, perhaps few gold people anticipated and certainly many of us envy. But you uh, observe that the blockchain is, uh, is, you know, you conduct your affairs anonymously by name, it's verified, and it is irreversible, as you say, no one example. Sorry to interrupt. So I was at a conference recently and listened to a very interesting blockchain presentation. It was actually from the head of the, believe it or not, blockchain trade group or something like that. And he had this incredible application for the blockchain, which I think is far more interesting than cryptocurrencies. And that is the mutual fund industry, because in the mutual fund industry, you have complicated reporting requirements, lots of investors, and you have the mutual fund company itself, but then you have the custodians and the legal, the compliance and the administrators. And so there's an enormous amount of information that has to fly around. And that's one of the reasons it's only done once a day in the mutual fund industry. But with the blockchain, it is possible to envision um, that all becoming real time. So if uh, Jim Grant buys a thousand shares of the Putnam Voyager Fund, uh, you know, at 10.15 on a Monday morning, and everybody instantly is aware of that change. And, um, you know, that's an interesting concept. The interesting part of the presentation that I saw, which I remember vividly, is in order to demonstrate how many different people could log into this new information, they always used somebody typing into a computer with a five-digit password. So whether it's the administrator or, you know, the, the, the legal side or um, you know, the mutual fund company itself, this will all still depend on the security of people's individual passwords, which as far as I know is generally one's wife or pet with a one on the end. Uh, so it is interesting that uh, even with all of the sophistication and the application, you know, its implementation uh, given the systems that are available out there will always be problematic. Okay. Well, Trey, thank you. This is uh, merely fabulous, as is your report. This was issued, what, a couple of days ago. And um, Rot Asset Management, July 2017. And that is the uh, the winning headline over your work. And I commend that work to uh, all interested in uh, monetary affairs and cryptos and, uh, I don't know, all those who, who uh, follow Trey Reich, the pro stylist. Very stylish indeed. So thank you for being with us, Trey. You're very kind, Jim. Thanks a lot. Okay, this edition of the uh, Grants Podcast is brought to you by Casper, uh, the mattress people. You know, you know, when you buy a Casper mattress, uh, this is a purely risk-free transaction. First of all, it's a f- fabulous product. It's uh, engineered obsessively, as the Casper people are wont to say, and uh, offered to you at a shockingly fair price. Uh, but as I say, it comes risk-free. It, uh, you get free delivery, uh, free returns, and a 100-night home trial. Now, it's 100 nights for free. But, uh, Phil, I don't know. I th- I'm thinking that uh, we ought to throw in the days, too. as kind of a premium. Yeah, both, I think. Yeah, so uh, just for the uh, Grants listeners, you get 100 nights. Casper will give you the 100 nights, and, and uh, we at Grants throw in the days. So that's, well, like 200? Yeah, 200, I think. Okay. And if you don't love it... Uh, um, that uh, speaks to your level of taste in mattresses. But if you don't, uh, they'll pick it up and cart it off and refund you everything. Uh, did I mention it was designed, developed, and assembled in the United States of America? That's for you, Donald Trump. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, oh, yes, I am to read something, which is my pleasure to read. This is the, uh, uh, the special uh, bespoke 
uh, URL you uh, get to by uh, offering by, by buying a, a, a Casper from the uh, Grants uh, podcast, and uh, it's www.casper.com/grant. G-R-A-N-T, no S. Grant Pub. G-R-A-N-T-P-U-B. And um, you know the thing is, uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I, this comes to us kind of uh, confidentially, but if if uh, Casper is gonna do this again. If one person buys a mattress, so please, I mean, a football coach in ninth grade, he said, guys, boys, we, we got to win this game. Baby needs, needs a new pair of shoes. So for Christ's sake, buy a mattress. <laughs> Evan, you know, I was, uh, I was uh, talking with uh, one of our listeners the other day, and he said, uh, um, when are you going to do AMA? And I said, uh, I don't know, American Medical Association, what's that got to do with, uh, you know, with losing money in cryptocurrency? He said, no, no, it's ask me anything. There is a Reddit board that uh, is nothing but that. A CNN personality who's kind of one of the hackier guys in CNN went on there, and everyone asked him, so when are you going to do some real reporting? <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is about AMA, you can also make up these questions yourself. Yeah. So my friend James Crichton said, uh, you know, well, what's in your PA? personal account, which is, I don't know, uh, James is a little bit intrusive, but I, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to answer this question. And uh, it's a little self-revealing. I suppose that's the purpose of AMA-ism. Now, uh, by way of preface, most of our investable family wealth is entrusted to um, a couple of professionals, one of whom is uh, named Michael Harkins, uh, Levy Harkins. The other is uh, Paul Isaac at Arbiter Partners. They both are accomplished people, and uh, they don't need the plug, but there it is. So um, that's the uh, kind of the serious portion of the liquid assets. And then there's the uh, the DIY or the do-it-yourself portion. And uh, that takes two forms these days. The larger form is pure, non-yielding, US, U.S. dollar cash. It is sitting around, uh, not looking especially good, but just sitting there latently, awaiting developments. It's patient as can be. It's actually more patient than some family members who wish it were working harder. But my approach, James Crichton, you ask this kind of personal question, is that cash affords flexibility, liquidity, and it affords the opportunity to strike when Mr. Market gets around to producing some value. So uh, Seth Klarman wrote this wonderful book about uh, margin of, uh, the title was Margin of Safety. And in it, he talks about how cash ought to be one's default asset. You don't hold cash because it's a given arbitrary portion of a model portfolio. You hold it unless there is something else to do that is compelling. And I don't know, Evan, the way you and I see the world, I can't speak for you. I think I know a little bit about you, but the way I see the world, at least, I don't see much in the way of compelling value. And not seeing that, uh, I am holding back, um, for me, a great deal of money and expectation of the reemergence of value. Now, I was telling someone about um, my, I was telling a civilian about my views recently, and he I said, ah, oh, it's pretty dark. No, it's not dark. It is, well, to take the historical viewpoint, uh, going back to 1826 in Britain, 1825, uh, there's been, and then bringing in America during its coming of age in financial affairs, there has been a uh, crash, a break, a uh, disaster, uh, at least a bear market about every 10 years, right? 
thunderclap, 1825, 1837, 1847, 1856, 1870 odds uh, and two, or 79, etc. And 20th century has brought more of the same. So it's been, uh, what, uh, 2008, this is 2017. So the clock is ticking historically on something in the way of a discontinuous event. And well do I recall, fondly do I recall, the opportunities on offer in 2008 into 2009. So that's, that's the major portion of the grant. Liquid assets is sitting around earning nothing, but expectant is this pile of cash, expectant. Now the other portion of the family liquid wealth has to do with gold and the, fa- the business, the grants publishing uh, empire, I guess is uh, the accurate depiction of what we do here because it's now multimedia avenue. We got to, you got your voice, we got your TV, and we got your print. And we have the Almost Daily Grants, which is another branch of the print division. Uh, so we own, uh, for us, a certain amount of gold in the business. It's a cash management uh, asset. It earns just as much as the bank account, but it uh, holds the promise of hedging us in the event the Fed should step in the front of a bus, which it will do presently. Trust me on that. I own, uh, for me, a certain amount, a great deal, in fact, of low-lying and utterly unresponsive mining shares, but they, too, um, offer optionality in what I take to be uh, a very, very likely event, which is the uh, recalibration of the world's view of what constitutes uh, a suitable currency. Yeah, so... um, James Crichton, you asked, and that is the answer. I'm not going to give you dollars and cents because it's, uh, I don't know, it's either embarrassing or impugning. Uh, but uh, in proportion, uh, much more cash than gold, uh, but not a little gold, not a few mining shares. And uh, I'm holding them in the expectation of a change in the weather. And on form, that change will happen. So, Evan, what do you, I mean, you've been unwantedly silent this past, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30 minutes. What do you think? What's uh, What strikes you these days? Part of what's so unsatisfying about this market compared to last ones, at least in the dot-com bubble, there there were large pockets of um, cheap stocks. Uh, if you didn't want to buy tech stocks, you could buy pharmaceutical companies at a steal. You could buy REITs that would not only you know be cheap, but would offer you know a pretty good dividend yield. So if you looked at kind of the peak of the market, which I think was March of 2000, the S&P headline multiple was over 30 times. But the S&P 500 equal weight, which, you know, equal weights every share as opposed to weights them by market cap, was trading at 20 times. So there's this wide dispersion in values. If you look today, or at least as of yesterday, the multiple on both the S&P 500 and the S&P 500 equal weight is like, I think, 21.8 times. It's equal. Um, Everything is kind of bland, blah, equally overvalued and kind of uninteresting. It's, It's harder to find these pockets of safe value that are just lying around. Yeah. Well... Um, the nice thing about uh, being a private investor, or at least having uh, some money with which to invest, but not professionally, not other people's money, your own. The nice thing about that is nobody's, nobody has a clock on you, right? Nobody has a stopwatch. You can imagine that. You can imagine uh, the impatience of those who would be looking over your shoulder and saying, what are we doing? Uh, but the, uh, the freedom not to transact I think is a, is a very rare and precious freedom, especially these days. So um, I am happy doing what I'm doing. I'm not so happy talking about it, but James Crichton asked, and there, James, is your answer. Evan, uh, should we do this again next week? I, I think so. What a great idea.
Well, until then, ladies and gentlemen, it has been a pleasure to be with you, and I hope it's been, I hope it's been kind of mutual, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.